This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. And you've practiced the muscle memory of practicing on your run, your hide, the fight tools that you grab, the treat as far as being able to throw on that tourniquet, etc. You have to have the muscle memory. This episode is brought to you by Titan HST. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly. I just want to start off by saying thank you to everybody who stopped by the Titan HST booth at the International Association of Emergency Managers um, conference there in Long Beach. It was great to meet some of you guys and talk about, uh, you know, just what's going on in emergency management. And it was just awesome meeting everybody. Also, it was great speaking at the college conference uh, on Sunday. Got to meet a lot of great students and interact with everybody. And it was a lot of fun. And again, I appreciate all the good comments and, and the conversation that we had just in general about growing emergency management and how we can make things uh, make things better and, and progress forward with um, what we're doing. Today, uh, we're going to be talking to Eric Franco from High Speed Tac Med, and it was really uh, it was a really great conversation. It's a paradigm shift, right? Talk about responding to active shooter, and everything changes, right? And if you remember in Columbine, the changes that occurred with tactics with law enforcement and now you're seeing those same tactics changing with emergency medical response whether it's fire or just ems and also law enforcement doing more medical treatment in these critical situations so we saw a lot of that shift happening after the boston bombing well during the boston bombing really but um on, on paper and on planning after that and again you see the same thing like at the Las Vegas shooting, people taking action and saving lives with quick using things like the tourniquet. And uh, Eric has some really great points on the training aspect of it for law enforcement and fire. And he also has some great points going in for the layperson who um, should just get some of this training done because of the way things are so whether it's active shooter whether it's a like the boston bombing whether it's like the new york city where the guy drove through with a truck whether it's like an ohio state where the guy comes out with a sword all of these practical skills can be used in saving lives in situations like that and this is what we're getting at that's the paradigm shift and we call it active shooter because that's what it's called that's what everybody kind of goes with it today and i would like to see the paradigm shift of us talking about things such as active violence 
because even if it's not a gun, it could be something else. And so I think as emergency managers and as emergency responders, we should really think about this in the sense of active violence, whether like in the Boston bombing, it was a bomb, it wasn't shooting, but the same principles stay same. So think about that. This is the paradigm shift of the active shooter. Thank you guys for being here. I do appreciate it. And I would love it if you could take some time to just make some comments like I know some of you have. Thank you for that. Share this with your friends and with your colleagues and anybody who's in emergency management who you think could learn from from what we're learning from here um, in this community. So I think that's the, uh, the important part that I've grown that community of, of sharing this information. I'm learning a lot by talking to these people. I hope you guys are learning a lot by, by listening to what they have to say. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much and enjoy Eric Franco. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe with Ian Weekly and today... Uh, we have Eric Franco on with High Speed TACMED. And we're going to have a couple conversations here regarding first kind of like a response mode to active shooter. And this has really been something that we've been focusing here lately on the news with Vegas and, and now Texas. I think it's appropriate to, to have this conversation. So, Eric, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Todd. So, Eric, how did you get started in the world of the high speed TACMED and disaster medicine in, in general? Well, uh, a little bit of, about my background, which kind of led up to um, active shooter training and TAC med training. Uh, for the past, gosh, now about 14 years, I've, uh, I've actually been involved as a reserve deputy in search and rescue for a large sheriff's department. And one of uh, the things that we do as far as our search and rescue team is respond to anything. And an active shooter situations, barricaded suspect situations, suspects that run up into the mountains, or that uh, just go into an area and you need additional bodies on our team. We've got about 30 people that can respond 24 hours a day and seven days a week, nonstop, every single day out of the year. And, um, and, and that's been kind of already uh, built into exactly our response. But it wasn't until 2012, um, Sandy Hook Elementary School, that uh, active shooter situation incident that took place over there, that there was a directive that came down through our county uh, basically saying that um, every single station out of our entire county needed to go ahead and have not just active shooter uh, response awareness, but they had to go through physical training exercises at the local elementary schools, just blanket straight across. And anything like that happens um, with any incident that goes on. So the moment that that kicked off, and we're in 2017, so for the past five years, uh, and actually a little bit less than that because we, we hit this hard. Out of our team of 30, um, our sergeant came in and said, hey, who do I have as volunteers to be part of a tactical medical response team in order to respond 24-7 to any large active shooter, bomb blast situation, potential threat, uh, anything that goes on in our, entire, uh, in our entire response area. And eight of us raised our hands. And right after that incident in 2012, we jumped into every single – um, local agency training that we can get into, state agency training, like with California Highway Patrol, um, and federal agency training. So whether we're you know, taking training through FLETC, uh, triple C courses, or if we're doing care under fire, um, going in with LA Clear, uh, LA HIDA, any of the other different multiple agencies or training foundations that we can get into, we, we would. So between local, state, and fed, we were able to get into uh, all sorts of different trains and not necessarily to say, hey, this is, you know, hey, we're so cool because, you know, we've gone through this, but our team, it's a very humble team that we've got that can respond anywhere, whether it be by ground or by copter. 
but basically we took the best practices from all of those different trainings that are out there. And we saw what worked. We even trained down with the military down in San Diego uh, with Borstar down on the border for border, border patrol agents, special operations groups. Um, and we were able to get the best practices and really bring them back as far as our team and then actually train our entire station. And now several of us on our team are academy instructors and in-service instructors for our department. So we can go to any station, and we do, in order to train fellow uh, deputies who are out there, full-time deputies. I'm a reserve deputy, so I have flexibility in my schedule to go ahead and do that. That's been pretty much the bread and butter on that context of it. Now, in the high-speed tech med world, I, I not only get to do the law enforcement type of training, but I also get to jump hands-on into EMT response, emergency medical services training, and fire department training as well, as far as like rescue task force. Uh, we have a fantastic relationship with LA City and LA County Fire, and um, we've been able to hop into their best practices, directives on rescue task force formation, movement, communication, setup when a warm zone is declared and everything like that. And one thing that I've done in my business, and I've kind of uh, done this based out of the huge, huge demand that's out there for law enforcement and fire department and EMS in order to be trained tip of the sword on what works and what doesn't work uh, is to train in live environments. So one thing at High Speed Tech Med that we've been able to do is we've gone to probably over 50, gosh, no more than that, probably over 75 different live environments for the past several years. And um, when I say live environment, I mean elementary schools, junior highs, high schools, universities, um, movie theaters, corporate offices, churches. We've been able to go to malls, airports, um, everything. Everything instead of going to some shooting range that's out in the, uh, you know, uh, out at a designated location or maybe like a training center that's specifically at some, you know, designed up training location. We actually go to the live environment and we practice there with the full-time patrol deputies or officers who over will respond. We also bring in other officers like from higher patrol who will potentially respond, National Park Service, State Parks, MRCA, um, also special agents if they're, they happen to be doing a surveillance in, in context in certain areas that we train at. We'll pull in DEA or Secret Service if they have protective detail local or if it affects them. Um, and we'll actually train with all of them in these live locations. The way we're able to do it, it's simply this excellent relationships that we have. So just building the network that way. But also at the live locations, we only go red gun and we do it super low mm -hmm. profile. So when we're in there, it's normally on the off business hours. So if it's at a, a normal uh, eight to five corporate office, we'll be there from uh, eight, 8 p.m. to 12 midnight. And then we do a four hour block of training we're done by midnight and then we cut out, put everything back to the way it was. And nobody knows that we were there except for, of course, you know, the manager of facilities, manager, et cetera, um, point of contact that we've got there. Same thing with movie theaters, instead of uh, going there, whenever things might be uh, uh, going with, with customers, we'll go at six in the morning. We'll be done by 10 AM before the first employee comes in, uh, first additional employee comes in and so on and so forth. Um, just recently, and this kind of relates to how we got into this, we conducted our, gosh, probably third large-scale active shooter response exercise um, at a local airport, at Burbank Airport. 
and the, um, the the fire chief, the police chief for Burbank Airport, are uh, some of the best that are out there and allow their crews to literally push as hard as they can to stop the threat and to treat the people. Not only are they well-versed with their training staff that they have and their tactics on how to pursue a suspect or suspects in coordinated effort at their airport, um, but they also have actually purchased TAC med kits and we train with those hands-on, like full-on taking everything out of the wrapper and train full-on with uh, anywhere from 20, 30, 45 victims, uh, role-player victims that we have in live locations, whether it's their gates, their terminals, ticketing areas, loading zones, we go everywhere, um, whether it's uh, the private hangars, office sections, anything, in order to make sure that their police force can respond as fast as possible. And their fire department, on that context, they respond in a very, very aggressive way too, in waiting for the protocol warm zone to be announced, but then being able to come in as a rescue task force, four firefighters with uh, anywhere between two and four law enforcement as force protection to go in and actually stabilize patients in place. Um, one of the things that we do that's a lot different than a lot of protocol that might be out there is our exercises only go 10 minutes long. And for everybody I've ever talked to, it's kind of an anomaly. They go, why 10 minutes long? The last exercise we did with a large PD in, in the Los Angeles area was, you know, in, uh, 45 minutes long. Purely it's because of this, and we kind of learned this over the ways, is that somebody will go ahead and if they have mass arterial bleeding, if they're shot in the arm or the leg, let's say they're shot in the arm, they have about, and it hits their brachial artery, where they have mass arterial uncontrolled bleeding, they'll have about plus or minus about eight minutes before they bleed out. And let's say they're shot in their leg for more artery. They'll have about plus or minus four minutes until they bleed out. So from that context right there, as far as a fast bleed out, and what we know on just basic first aid, so uh, from, from the, the firefighter side of it, uh, the EMT side of it, I mean, just from a, a cop side of it, just basic first aid, if somebody's going to bleed out in about four minutes if they get shot in the leg mass arterial bleeding or eight minutes, uh, our exercises should not go beyond 10 minutes because our capability and our ability to respond as law enforcement, deputies, officers, agents should literally be able to get the bad guy, get the suspect or suspects in under that amount of time and to treat the people in place using tourniquets, chest seals, trauma dressing at the very bare minimum. So we figured that out. And one of the contexts that we've now, it, we integrate in every single training that we have is 10 minute exercises, two minute debriefs, three minute resets, and then we go it again. So if we have a four hour window of training with a SWAT team or a four-hour uh, window of training with patrol shift or uh, a special t uh, SRT or if it might just be normal patrol rangers, who agents, whoever it might be, 10-minute exercises the entire time. So uh, we've kind of developed that secret sauce, and, and um, we definitely see the value in what it is, and a lot of people see the value. That's why we've we've been incredibly busy from right after Sandy Hook and then every single incident that occurred thereafter for active shooter incidents, bomb blast incidents, vehicle into crowd incidents, we get phone calls, emails, and everything like that saying, hey, I need training for my law enforcement agency, for my fire agency, for my civilian uh, employees that I have in my corporate office. Can you come in here and just give us one hour of, of run, hide, fight, treat training in here and what we should do and you're only given an hour? Can you do it? And, and we do. So that's where it's, it's kind of gone to. Our overhead staff, uh, Todd, we've got about five core overhead staff that run everything from our top-level operations to our logistics setup, our planning, our detailed planning, and our 
what would be considered like event action plans and ops plans as far as different agencies on how they have it. We cover everything from notifications to total number of people in, total observers who they might have for VIP observers, total number of participants going through. We have our scenario plans on the exact number of times that law enforcement or fire department or EMS will be going through the exercises. And we make sure that by the end of what we do, that people not only have the proficiency by a lot of practice, but they've got the confidence to go ahead and put a tourniquet on somebody perfectly and effectively in order to save someone's life or to put on a chest seal or to put on trauma dressing or to use quick clot or a clotting agent if they had to, to save someone's life. And each one of those tools, no more than 30 seconds as well. I mean, we really push everything's by time, the way that we go ahead and do it. So that in a nutshell is, is pretty much from where it started and why I started the, the company just because the demand was so high and, and uh, we couldn't be at all places all the time and just have expanded out. Um, uh, that's what we've done. That's what we've done over the years. That's outstanding. So a couple of things that you said that kind of touched home here. And one is, is that obviously we're, tra- we're training uh, DHS, FEMA, um, and also local sheriff's departments are really pushing the run, hide, fight. Uh, scenario for our civilians and for people that in offices and schools and whatnot. And then you added a tree component to it. And then the other thing that you said, and this is what's, what I'm really trying to make a paradigm shift on here is we talk about active shooter a lot. And I think that we should not just pigeonhole ourselves into the active shooter, but to the act of violence person, such as, like you said, somebody who's running into a crowd with a car or like in Ohio state where the guy comes out, with a sword and starts whacking at people. So do you guys talk about your run, hide, and then fight, then treat, how that works and how you get that into the hands of the layperson? And then what are you thinking about as far as the act of violence type thing outside of just the act of shooter? As a matter of fact, to everybody, when we train a run, hide, fight, treat uh, session, we call it an active shooter response info session. That's one of the big things that we do, and we make it just very, very simple. Within one hour, we show the uh, Department of Homeland Security video as far as run, hide, fight. But what I do is after that short, about five-minute video, I actually break it down into the run. Like, what does that really mean? Like, the moment that a vehicle starts coming, you know, at the third street promenade, let's say one of the pillars is taken out and a vehicle uh, just comes straight down, boom, you have to immediately think, first option is going to be the, the run that I'm going to do. I also teach people before going to the next components, I teach them to think outside the box on the run. If we happen to be at a shopping mall and you hear gunfire down one main corridor uh, down forward of you, and then all of a sudden you run the opposite direction, but boom, a bomb goes off right behind you. Where do you go? And I teach people, hey, if you go through any retail store in a shopping mall, like an indoor shopping mall, Once you go through the retail store all the way to the back, past the inventory, push those double doors open and it goes into a secret hallway. After you go into that secret hallway, push the next doors open and that'll put you out into the parking lot. That's just an example as far as being able to think outside the box wherever you're at. Just recently, being at several different airports, every Burbank as an example or LAX as an example, every, I don't know, 50 yards you walk through an airport, you are going to see, and not to the exact measurement, but you will see a gathering of different emergency exits that are right there that you could just go ahead and push through and be out. You have to think outside the box. 
of anywhere that you can go. The same thing has to do with public venues and hotels is the run. You have to run. A lot of people ask me too, hey, Eric, how far is far enough away? And I learned something in, in my experience of also being a reserve firefighter for about four years. We had what's called the rule of thumb, that if we had, for example, a tanker that was on fire or it was ble- uh, going to blevy type thing, like explode here in a bit, and we wanted to get away, it's a rule of thumb where you stick out your thumb, and if you can cover up that building, that tanker, whatever it is that you're running from or you're getting away from, if you can cover up the whole thing with your thumb, that's about far enough away right there. Now, in the active shooter component where there's bullets flying, that's where you have to get away as far as you can, then to the point where you've got cover something that could go ahead and protect you from any random bullets that are coming from that hostile position your way, that's incredibly key and incredibly important. As we know, because of different types of guns and different types of bullets and velocities, velocities out there, that uh, things can go very far, very quick. So you want to make sure to have that cover as well. That's the run component. That's how I teach it. The hide, I just don't talk about hide. I actually talk about fortify. So I jump into the run, hide, fight, treat component in, in, in the hide. It's fortify out of an entire city hall. I teach at a lot of different city halls all, all around Southern California. And I, I teach their employees, hey, if something was to happen and you could not run, your next option is to hide. Now, not just any room. And we're not talking about like just hide underneath a table that only has four legs and the bad guy could see you. This is full on. You have a pre-designated room as far as being uh, knowing exactly where to hide. And you've practiced the muscle memory of practicing on your run, your hide, the fight tools that you grab, the treat as far as being able to throw in that tourniquet, et cetera, you have to have the muscle memory. So I teach people in the hide, go to that one safe room or two safe rooms that you have right there. Everybody hustle and they've got to get there. In time drill exercises I've done, Todd, it's taken in a corporate environment. So let's take people who are not trained in emergency services and how fast they can do this. They can get to a hide room in about eight seconds. No kidding. From sitting in like a surrounding area, if they have a designated safe room that they can get into, lock the door, push a a copier in front of that door, shut off the lights. Everybody turns their phone to vibrate real quick and turns off of the, the alarm components that they have and then hunkers down, they could do all that in about eight seconds. And it blows people's minds. They normally think, oh, no, I couldn't do that because that sounds complicated. The only complicated thing about anything and response is actually not doing it. It sounds complicated. Once you do it, you're like, wow, that was actually pretty easy. Right. And uh, even from the tactical environment, as, as you and I both know, the moment you do it, you're like, wow, that was actually easier than I thought. We talked about it way too much. We should have just practiced it 50 times and we would have been great. So that's the hide component to go ahead and fortify doors. I also teach, for example, in schools, classrooms, easiest way to go ahead and fortify a door, not only you know with the lock, is that in some uh, schools, they actually have a, uh, a push bar or lock block that goes on the door to add that extra measure. But let's say you don't have any of that. When I teach in different schools, I don't even have a lock on the door. I mean, they're very, you know, open environment type of thing that every student picks up one desk that they sit at, that chair that has an attached desk, and they put it right in front of the door and just stack it, uh, you know, up about 12 high. And it is just so complicated to get through there. There's no way anybody can easily get through it. And I know from going through breaching training with several different agencies that for me to breach a door, let's say it's just me by myself and I don't have, you know, explosives or breaching tools type thing. For me to get through a door that is just stacked up with desks and tables, there's no way I can in a certain amount of time that, uh, for example, law enforcement who responds will be there uh, faster than I can breach through any type of stack. That's the one thing on the hide. On the fight, 
I go into it as far as te- a teamwork aspect. Uh, I just got done teaching at a city hall last month, and I taught them, all of the audience members, I taught them about, hey, let's say that we go into that hide, that hide room, the, the safe room that we have, and we're hiding, we fortified the doors. Now we're going to grab our weapons that are there. I mean, full-on letter opener. Let's look at a corporate environment. So not saying that we have a taser or a gun. Letter opener, you've got the fire extinguisher, you've got the stapler, you've got that trophy that's sitting on your desk or in that area saying, you know, congratulations on being here for five or ten years. And, you know, it looks like a star type thing you can put in your hand. You've got all these different things you can use as fight tools. But as far as where to hit any bad guy, it's very simple, especially if a bad guy has, let's say, a you know, a vest on type thing, and they've got some armor plates in there, whatever it might be, in the eyes, the nose, and the throat. Those are the three things that no matter how much weight somebody bench presses or how, how much weight people lift, they cannot build up muscle in their eyes, their nose, and their throat. That's a way to go ahead as far as hitting right in the computer box to get them disoriented enough to where you can have the advantage. Now, that's not where it stops. On the fight, I also go into it where people are going to go over exactly what they're going to take in a split second. So a leader, and it's anybody could be a leader in a room. If there's five people in there, you just basically say left arm, right arm, shoulders, hips, and legs. And you do it again. You're going to grab the, the right arm. You're going to grab the left arm. You're going to grab the shoulders. You're going to grab the hips. You're going to grab the legs. If this bad guy comes in, you've got those fight tools, boom. Disorient him, grab that component, and you're going straight down, and you're going to dogpile on top of this, on top of this suspect, on top of this bad guy. And you're going to stay there until the good guys come. Even if the bad guy goes, hey, I can't breathe. Get off me. No, we're full on on top. That's what I teach everybody um, who's out there, even on the civilian side within law enforcement stations. That's exactly what I teach everybody in the secretariat to everybody who's in our crime analysis divisions at the front desk record. Hey, if you had to hop on somebody, right arm, left arm, shoulders, hips and legs, and you're going to teamwork it as far right. as doing that. And you have the Lionheart's mentality. The last component as far as treat, and this is the first slide in my presentations whenever I'm giving uh, trainings and hands-on trainings about this, I have a, a data slide that's up there of every single active shooter event, every single vehicle uh, 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 born attack that's out there, every single knifing that, mass knifing that's out there, a bomb blast that goes off. You have multiple victims who are out there and you have multiple people dead. Pulse nightclub, Las Vegas, you've uh, got this recent one in Texas. No matter where it is, a Brussels airport, Paris, you've got Mumbai, you've got all sorts of different ones. The one thing is not the incident. So I don't look at the incident per se very closely, but I actually study and our medical officer on, on our team studies this too, is the number of people not injured, but the number of people killed. And we look at that based on, did they bleed out? Were they, were they shot in an extremity, mass arterial uncontrolled bleeding? Were they shot in the chest? Did they almost have a tension pneumothorax? Did they die from an airway obstruction? Did they get shot in the mouth, the throat, you know, whatever it might be. So we look at it from kind of like a, a biological point of view. Like if all of a sudden, what caused them to die? If it was a bleed out, what could we do? One of the things that's very interesting, and if you take a look uh, on the internet, you'll see this as far as preventable combat deaths. If you just go ahead and type that in. And then you also, if you type in on the civilian side, it's, it's, it, it leans more towards torso shots on different things, which mean more potential for sucking chest wounds and things like that, as far as your ability to treat. But if you take a look at preventable combat deaths, just in a, as an example, 60% of the preventable deaths that are out there on the combat side are mass arterial bleeding, right. 60%, an extremity wound. Third, about, I think it's about 33% are from a tension pneumothorax. So it's a larger caliber round that goes straight through the, 
through the, uh, uh, the, the bullet resistant protection that somebody's got. And all of a sudden, tension pneumothorax, the lung starts to go ahead and go up, sucking chest wound. The, the trachea starts to deviate off to one side, and you've got somebody who suffocates that way. If you can go ahead and have, go ahead and have a chest seal, or you could have a tourniquet. In those two situations, you would save about 93% of those preventable deaths. If you look at it just like that for that, that type of data. Now, in just taking a look at more of the civilian side of it, knowing that more gunshot wounds go into as far as hitting lungs, you just need more chest seals. That's all it is. As far as being able to go ahead and cut somebody's shirt off, clamshell their, their shirt open, wipe away any blood that's there, peel and stick like a hyphen vent chest seal straight on the front, peel and stick another one on the back for the through and through gunshot wound. Um, whether it's a knife wound, whether it's a gunshot wound, whether it's just a construction site accident where somebody falls onto rebarb, pulls themselves off. All of a sudden they've got a second chest wound in a hole right there. You've got hyphen chest seal, boom, you can put one on the front, on the back, on their bare skin. I mean, it's easy stuff. So I start that way and I teach backwards as far as the reason why people die in a short period of time. Then I go into the treat element of it because one thing people don't understand is that what hits the news is not necessarily, oh, 17 people, their lives were saved. It's more what hits the, the top level banner is 28 people died, you know, 42 injured type thing, but right. 28 people died. And could we have saved their life? And the, the resounding answer is yes, we could have saved their life, which is not a problem at all. If we had a tourniquet, chest seal and trauma dressing as our option to go ahead and help save their life. So on the treat side of it, then I really go into tourniquets, the different type of tourniquets that are out there, specifically uh, uh, soft T-wides. I also talk about cat tourniquets because those are, uh, there's a lot of them out there too. Some of the cutting edge ones that by far are the fastest that between law enforcement and civilian uh, clients that I have are, are the fastest, which are the M2 ratchet tourniquets. The basic concept of like the, uh, uh, snowboard bindings or buckles that you have on ski boots or ratchets that you have. It's a basic concept. On average, Todd, the, the amount of seconds to put on those three tourniquets, an M2 ratchet, soft T wide, and a cat tourniquet, it's literally seven seconds for the M2 ratchet. It takes about 14 seconds on average for a, a soft T wide to put on. And then it, it takes more. It takes about 23 seconds to go ahead and put on a cat tourniquet. And those stats that I have is from doing... I think about 42 large-scale exercises, large-scale being anywhere from 100 to 250 different responding uh, first responders from law enforcement to EMS, fire, but doing several repetitions within two-hour periods, four exercises per hour, so eight to 12 exercises through, but with multiple people. And I get all that data back, and that's about the average it takes. Again, with the fastest being the M2 ratchet, seven seconds. And that's everything from knowing exactly where it is. I got to put it on the leg, high and tight pull the strap down, ratchet it up, write the time, and I'm on to my next patient with that type of mentality. Has that ratchet, has that ratchet too, device been, uh, has that been approved by EMS? Here's the interesting part about it. On a lot of EMS guidelines that are out there, it talks about a windlass. It talks about you need to go ahead and have the mechanical advantage as far as having a windlass and turn it so many times so that you stop the mass arterial bleeding. Go ahead and hook it into a stop contraption, which could be the delta or it could be a hook like on a on a cat tourniquet. For some EMS agencies, they need to actually now expand their um, acceptance of having a ratchet tourniquet that's on there because of how effective and fast it is. I have learned that there are very progressive units that are out there within different agencies that they get the approval to have the M2 ratchets and they go back to their 
you know, medical director and their medical policy and say, hey, just add in the M2 ratchets that you need to go ahead and here's exactly what it is, exact application per the manufacturer's guidelines, ratchet all the way until the bleeding stops, right the time right up on here. I mean, it's about that right. fast. But think, things are changing as we speak because all the way from Long Beach to Ventura County to Santa Barbara County down to San Diego, when I do these trainings, they're like, wait a minute, uh, that was way incredibly fast on that M2 ratchet as opposed to these 150 soft T-wides that we have or these, you know, 200 cat tourniquets we have, you know, right. things like that. And they make, they make the change. I know that progressive agencies too, let's say Burbank Airport as an example, they actually update their policy right there to say, okay, we now can use XYZ as far as this component in, in the EMS element of their training. To your question too, police officer standards, standards and trainings for the state of California, just this last April came up with their new curriculum that they have. But if I back up to January, American Heart Association, American Red Cross, out to all of the instructors that are out there, came into play, and this was even before then, but they were really kind of turning the gauntlet down saying, hey, you need to teach everybody on just basic first aid, whether you're a cop or you're a civilian, on how to use a combat tourniquet. So that was actually written in there, a chest seal, trauma dressing, quick clot, or a clotting agent, not, not naming quick clot the brand, but a clotting agent. So because that came out, it made our training so much easier because we've been teaching that uh, for several years but now it's become a requirement because we know doctors and nurses and medical directors and everybody who directs on what police fire EMS should do know that these tools, you can apply them in 30 seconds in a mass casualty situation and save multiple lives. So it, it's really kind of uh, come a long way. The hands-on component, when I was talking about treat for the run, hide, fight, treat component, the hands-on that I do, I actually force every single participant that comes to trains that we do to put on tourniquets so many times that they can't get it wrong. I mean, there was one saying that, I, that I've heard in, um, in for example, um, small arms training that I've done where, and in rifle training that I've done that you don't want to practice until you get it right and then you stop. You actually want to practice until you can't get it wrong. And I'm 100% behind that. And, and I'm a firm believer in that. When I first heard that, I'm like, oh, that's very interesting, kind of catchy, whatever it might be. But I'm, I've actually learned instead of complicating our trainings, we make it see one, do one, teach one. We, we also do it to where we repetitiously go through where people can close their eyes and they could still do the same good thing as far as proper application of exactly their TAC med skills. And that's one thing, which is the walk away on the treat. On average, out of our 10 minute exercises, it takes on average about a minute, let's say a minute 40 seconds for law enforcement to stop the threat, which is their number one mission, whether it's one bad guy, two bad guys, about a minute and 40 seconds. Then we've got it pushed all the way to where it takes probably on average about five minutes and 30 seconds for them, to, the law enforcement, this is just law enforcement that we train to have stabilized everybody, have treated everybody in our scenarios. And I'll give you an example, Todd, the way that I do this, I actually push people to almost their edge on, on being able to treat victims. If there's eight um, responding law enforcement officers coming in or, or agents or deputies, wh whoever it might be, they're broken into two different teams. Two teams, four-person uh, four contact team is team one, a four-person contact team is team two. Team one will go in, and about 60 seconds later, team two will go in to the scenario to stop the threat, then to treat the people. A minute, 40 seconds is, on average, the amount of time it takes that one contact team and the help a minute later from a secondary contact team to stop the threat. So good for them. They're using good tactics. But the time clock for everybody that we have as far as role players has started depending on their injury. 
So if all of a sudden they have mass arterial bleeding out of the leg and the bad guys come through with their blank gun and they, you know, shoot past a certain point, they start their, their time clock on the countdown. If all of a sudden they have mass arterial bleeding out the arm, they start their time clock on the countdown. And they have a you know, certain amount of time that moment it passes, they're dead. And we have a very accurate uh, tracking of that because we have the help of our role players, countdown timers, and supervision that goes on right there with several proctors that we have in strategic positions. That's how we're able to get law enforcement to have those fast numbers is that they practice. But I got to guarantee, I got to tell you one thing that's guaranteed every time. The first exercise we ever do with a brand new law enforcement agency, no matter if you're state, federal, local, everybody normally dies in mm-hmm. our scenarios, in our 10-minute scenarios. They almost always normally die. The reason is, is because the tactics and it, this is kind of the training that we get in academies and in in-service trainings, the tactics, we have them. But a lot of times it's kind of slow and methodical. And the idea of being a contact team and pushing hard towards the threat is a newer concept that is now becoming old hat. But at the same time, sometimes law enforcement agencies kind of pump the brakes real quick when it comes down to treating people because they might not have a TAC med kit on their thigh. They might not have a TAC TAC med kit that you dropped in the middle of the mass casualty scene that they can pull resource out of. Because people are gonna bleed out in four minutes, eight minutes or suffocate, let's say in 12, from attention Nemo. Um, this is one thing that I've actually trained cops of how to exactly to respond and treat people where they're at. Now on the treat element, if I jump into the fire side, as far as training that we've done, I've done a lot of work with rescue task forces, with training fire departments, that when they put in four firefighters, like a captain engineer and two firefighters in, that are protected by up to two or four law enforcement and force protection, and they go into a warm zone, quote unquote, to treat people, that instead of treating one person and then stabilizing that one victim out of, let's say, 25, putting that one person on a mega mover, like on a tack stretcher to bring them out to triage or bring them out to a casualty collection point, I, I tell them to stop, not to do that. I actually tell them, hey, as you go through, you're going to do it in a very different way. I want you to go through and use your tourniquet, chest seals, and trauma dressing on every single person, all 25 role player victims that we have here, exactly where they lay and tell them that just stay right there. Boom. And you, you treat them in under 30 seconds and you're on to the next and on to the next. And not as a big conglomerate group too. Um, I have it to where rescue task forces actually grow in size as far as their area of responsibility. And their firefighters go out there and they go hands-on while force protection, while the cops are there protecting them 100% in case there's a secondary suspect who pops in or curves around or whatever it might be. That has probably been like the paradigm shift also as far as just staging out and or when they get the green light to go in, thus it's designated as a warm, uh, a warm zone, that they, they, they don't just stop at one victim, patch them up, make a mover on out. And then by the time they come back, everybody has passed away, unfortunately, because of mass arterial bleeding or suffocation or whatever it might be. Because a lot of times it takes more than, let's say, about that eight minutes to get back on a round trip, taking someone out. So that's kind of the different approach I have on, on treat. And that's just statistically been the way to go ahead and save as many lives as possible in the shortest amount of time. So I hope that answers uh, your initial question there, Todd. So Eric, do you use the principles of start triage in your training or do you have a different system that you're teaching? So as far as in, in the trainings, as far as rescue task force, because on the, uh, on the law enforcement side, they just go in, stop the threat and treat the people. On the fire department side, I actually have it to where instead of using start, like, hey, start where you stand. If you could hear my voice, please come this way. The way I set up my scenarios, every single scenario is set up to where those people who could run, 
those people who could walk, those people who could limp out have actually already run, walked, or limped out of that danger zone. And what you have left over are the people who were shot in the arm, the leg, or the chest that do not have the energy to go out. These are the people that are going to die in four or eight minutes or 12 minutes, and, and you've got to treat them in place. So that's what we do on that, that context. In other type of trainings, though, that I've done where it's more geared towards, let's say, a, a mass casualty situation of a train wreck, um, kind of like the uh, Chatsworth train wreck that um, our team had responded to, and then uh, doing triage and all the different, the, the, the red, the yellow, and the green tarps, and going through that triage process and transport on, you know, ground ambulances and copters and stuff. That's a different training that we do as far as the start triage, and then how fast people can get the, the tourniquets set up, how fast you can get your transportation crew up, how fast you can get the coordination there and the people being treated and, and checked out on ambulances and, and on their way to the hospitals. But in the active shooter side of it, I actually expedite it to where when they get together as a rescue task force, their whole mission, when they go in, boom, they see somebody down, they expand that huge rescue task force of, of eight people that are right there. They expand it out, treat everybody in that vicinity in less than 30 seconds. Now, if you think about it, you've got let's say four firefighters that could go hands-on and treat somebody with a, a single wound, let's say single life-threatening wound, that they can treat them in 30 seconds. And if they can, now you've treated four people in 30 seconds. You go up a little bit, another four people in 30 seconds. You go up a little bit, another four people in 30 seconds. And that just statistically, just by the numbers, saves the most amount of people. I have tried where we go in, hey, if you could hear my voice go this way and go straight out that exit, hook off to the right and just stay there. There's going to be more people to get you. What happens is those people who have mass arterial uncontrolled bleeding out of their arm, let's say, they basically die in a different location than where they were initially found in the context of it being a warm zone that's still chaotic and developing in that, mm -hmm. that 10 minute time clock that you've got. Also, as far as going around and doing 32 can do uh, on the RPM, for example, when you're taking your, um, the, the respiration count and you've got the uh, perfusion as far as uh, cap refill, and then you're asking them if they can do this and that and the other to just check if they're uh, uh, in a conscious and with, with it or have an altered level of consciousness. Going through all of that, it just takes too much time in the context of 30-minute hands-on life-saving treatment and then boom, on to the next. But with the force multiplier of four hands-on in 30 seconds and boom, move on to another four people hands-on and so on and so forth. The one thing, too, I've also taught in conjunction is when, let's say you have four contact teams that are in going after this bad guy, the moment that the threat has been stopped, neutralized, secured, and their weapon secured, all of those contact teams minus one officer, agent, deputy, whoever it might be, who has to stay with the, the downed suspect, all of those contact team personnel can now switch into, and they do this click in their mind, a rescue team. Mm -hmm. In the context of my TAC med kit I have on my thigh right here, that that tech med kit has two tourniquets, two chest seals, two trauma dressings, and some medical shears and some gloves. I am going to treat as many people as I physically can possibly do with what's in my kit. The moment I exhaust all of my resources in my kit and I've treated four critical, then I'm going to start asking for tourniquets. Hey, toss me a tourniquet, toss me chest seal, toss me the trauma dressing, whatever I can do that way. And what's funny is you would think, well, you know, cops aren't accustomed to that. The moment you put him through 12 times on this operation, they get it. And man, they're quarterback and everything like, hey, toss me this. They're all wide receivers on all sorts of stuff coming in. <laughs> some agencies, I'm actually very proud to say some agencies have gotten with the program and they purchase a mass casualty kit that's got 50 tourniquets, 50 twin pack chest seals and 50 trauma dressings with medical shears and gloves. 
Just that, just that. No band-aids, no neosporin, no, you know, uh, ice packs and stuff. None of that. Just those critical life-saving items in a kit, in like an art kit or some sort of mask couch kit that they just drop straight into the problem. And these <laughs> cops rip it open and then boom, they dig out of that as their resource hub to go hands-on because the rescue task force, it still takes them a movement to go. Even four at a time, 30 seconds. Hey, that's cool as far as how many lives are being saved. But if you have 50, you need as many cops who are not on the bad guy, so to speak, after the threat's been stopped to treat as many people as possible. So we, we teach in a very expedited fashion and it's all based on time, all based on number of casualties and all based on the outcome of being, all of the people died in the first exercise, all of the people lived in the last one. And the only thing that changed was repetition, was familiarity and the concept clicked that we have to stop the threat as fast as we can and treat all the people, and I mean everybody goes hands-on throwing a tourniquet on some victim who's got mass arterial bleeding or sucking chest wounds or whatever, whatever it might be that way because it's just this, the, the basic level of first aid. So right. there you go. I know that you got another appointment coming up here. We're coming close to the end. So um, how, if someone is really interested in getting your training, how could they get a hold of you? Uh, basically, there's a, a couple of different, uh, three, uh, three key ways um, that we have as far as any training that anybody wants to get. Uh, first and foremost, the simplest way is if they just go ahead and, and drop us an email at uh, training at highspeedtacmed.com. So it's training at and then H-I-G-H-S-P-E-E-D-T-A-C-M-E-D.com. That's one way. Another way is if they just give us a call at our office. We've got it to where any type of training anybody needs, whether it's law enforcement, corporate, private sector, executive protection, anybody who needs help in training, they can either drop us an email or they can give us a call. And, and the phone number is 805-419-0024. So 805-419-0024. The last way that somebody can get a hold of us too is um, if they go to our website, the uh, www.highspeedtacmed.com, and um, they click on the contact section. Inside there is just a little form they could fill out, hit send immediately. It comes into our team. And it could be a plethora of things. I mean, because uh, I've got different specialists within the company that teach everything from emergency response to medical response to uh, security response, disaster recovery, business continuity, tactical medicine, uh, active shooter response, bomb blast response. I mean, we've got a, a plethora of different specialists that we have um, within our cadre that we're able to go ahead and teach several, several different courses. But those are the, the three top ways right there, Todd, for you. For those of you that are listening on the road and you don't have your pen and paper ready to go, we're going to have this information on our show notes as well. So don't fret. We'll, uh, we'll, you'll be able to get this information. So, all right, Eric, here's the last question. It's the toughest one of the day. So somebody who's just getting involved in this business, what book would you give them to say, okay, this is how you're going to get information and be ready to roll? So one of the things that I've really grown to respect, I'm, I'm extremely humble when it comes to learning from other people, you included, and, and several people that we know mutually, I mean, out there in the small world, is I really respect mindset, the mindset and the mind practice that a lot of people have, and what I call the lion heart as far as their ability to go ahead and respond. A, a really good book in order to just know that mindset and what you have to practice and rehearse mentally and in your subconscious and just, you know, just jump the hurdle is um, The Bulletproof Mind by Lieutenant uh, Colonel Grossman. That is something where it just teaches you that perspective of your mindset of whether you are the people who's going to lead, follow, or kind of get out of the way. You'll get it right there. 
And also that things are not as complicated as you think. If you have just that awareness, you have that uh, capability in your mind that you can do absolutely anything. Anybody can. That's just one reiteration right there on that, that build of confidence, but on build on reality that anybody can do whatever they, they literally have practiced their mind to. Not just put their mind to, but practiced it through. So yeah, the, the Bulletproof Mind by Lieutenant Colonel Grossman uh, is one of just several people that whenever he speaks, whatever uh, material he has, anything else that goes out, fantastic, along with several others. But I would say that would be one really good, uh, good, good, good buy. I just want to say thank you so much for, for being here on the show. And is there anything else that you'd like to say before you got to go? You know what? No, I, I appreciate uh, literally the time that you've given me to go ahead and share um, with you and, and listeners as far as what the reality on, on TACMED responses that's out there. Here's the biggest thing as far as the key takeaway uh, that I have for people is that the run, hide, fight, treat. Those four things there, and anybody from civilian all the way to law enforcement to fire to EMS, just anybody who's a citizen, a human that's here, knowing how to master those four key components right there will not only save their life, but their loved one's life, their coworker's life, their family member's life, their uh, a stranger's life, uh, whoever it might be. Knowing how to go ahead and do that is key and critical. The last component there on the treat, a lot of people go, Eric, I've never taken a tourniquet chest seal trauma dressing you know, to the beach with me. What do you do if you're at the beach? What do you do if you're in a concert? What do you do if you're in a movie theater? What do you do if you're at church? And what I tell them is saying, hey, if you're in my training today, what you need to do is get a $30 tourniquet. You need to get a $6 trauma dressing and an $18 twin pack chest seal like the hyphen chest seal and throw that into a plastic bag throw it at the bottom of your purse, bottom of your briefcase, in your bag, your backpack, whatever it is that's with you. And now you've got those tools there that can save someone's life in less than 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest takeaway right there. Just don't listen to the material and go, oh, hey, those are good points. Full on those three things in total. I mean, in total, it costs less than like 60 bucks can save someone's life in less than 30 seconds and yours or a loved ones. I mean, that's, that's a key takeaway right there. All right, brother. Thank you so much. You, you got it, Todd. Thank you again. I appreciate it.